shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, this is it again, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for going Inside EMS with us. I'm your host, Chris Ceballero. And uh, summertime is here, and it's hot. I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it's probably uh, 650 degrees today with a uh, humidity of about the same. Hot, hot, hot. But, uh, you know, it's time. You know, think about it. Evan and Costello. Mike and Mike, Cagney and Lacey. Well, here's my second, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm fine, man. Which one am I, Mike Cagney or Lacey? I, you know, I think in that sense you get to choose. I mean, you you better as a blonde or a brunette. What do you think? Oh, I'm I'm Lacey then, definitely. All right, man. Awesome. Well, there you go. <laughs> I think uh, it's I think it's uh, cute that you're in Little Rock and you think it's hot and humid up there. That's so sweet. It's like 101 degrees, and it's like 105 degrees with heat index, and, you know, the humidity yeah. is probably uh, uh, 50%. And what's it, It's got to be the same there in Louisiana, no? Uh, except the fact that we're at about 94, 95 degrees, and the humidity is upwards of 70%, and that's on a good day. So. Well, it sounds like we've got a lot of comparable weather, but regardless of where we yeah. are, Hopefully where you are, you're enjoying the day and enjoying the weather. But i got to say, Kelly, yeah. last couple shows, we've had some really great uh, feedback. You know, we talked great about doing, doing a radio report. We talked about doing a hospital handoff. But i got to tell you, man, I've really missed doing the news. Yeah, I have too. And we've got some, we've got some excellent stories that just beg for our incisive commentary. And we want to thank everybody for going over to iTunes and rating our shows. But uh, as Kelly said, uh, let's go ahead and get to some news. So, Kelly, what's our first story? Man, today's story is out of Detroit Fire Department. Uh, as is, uh, as one of my Facebook friends said, Detroit fires a shot across the bow of D.C. Fire EMS in the race to be the crappiest place in the United States to need EMS there. Uh, Detroit Medic refuses to respond to an infant needing CPR. EMT Anne Marie Thomas was in a manning a quick response vehicle, uh, a specially outfitted Chevy Suburban, less than a mile from a car with a baby not breathing, 0.9 miles from a baby not breathing. There was no evidence of violence or a volatile scene. There was no need for police response, and supervisors and dispatchers were begging her to respond. And she refused to go on scene. The baby was revived and eventually died again later at the hospital. But in investigating the uh, incident, she told a supervisor, and I quote, I'm not about to be on no scene in 10 minutes doing CPR. You know how those families get. I don't know about you, man, but uh, that sounds like a woman who needs to be uh, out of Detroit Fire Department and out of EMS in general as close to yesterday as possible. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, once I saw this story, of course, you know, you look at him and you're like, oh, my God, here's a new spin for our career field. You know, this is what we're charged to do. And I was very, very surprised to hear that, you know, that there was this refusal. And, and even more over, you know, you talk about being out of Detroit Fire as of yesterday. You think there could be criminal charges here as well? I, well, I don't think that, uh, as, as uh, Wes Ogilvy, our, our friend Wes Ogilvy pointed out, what she did may not uh, equate to criminal char- uh, to a criminal offense. However, there's plenty of avenues to discipline her and, and possibly even revoke her paramedic or EMT certification that are not criminal offenses. You know, administrative law has its own set of rules, and, and 
applications, and, and it's entirely possible that she could, uh, could and in my view, should get her EMT certification line, uh, gang, even though what she did may not be a criminal offense. The Detroit Fire Commissioner, uh, Edsel Jenkins, said that she had been suspended but not fired, and she has since appealed her suspension. I would suggest that, you know, if uh, if Commissioner Jenkins is is really dedicated to turning uh, Detroit Fire EMS around, if the facts of the case turn out to be as they have been reported, she needs to be fired, period. He has said that the final authority to, to fire uh, ultimately rests with him, and uh, if this investigation pans out, then she needs to be gone. Yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this call as well is is the comments that, you know, there's 169 comments on EMS1 that, that talk yeah. about this call, and it goes from, you know, she should be charged with a criminal neglect or worse, you know, then there are people that are coming to her aid saying something to consider. A lot of these vulnerable one-man Romeo units have been assaulted in the past, you know, and I think that this is a, this is a, a scene where you know, your expertise is really needed. Mom's doing CPR. A lot of pediatric arrests are going to be respiratory in nature. And if you can get an airway, you're going to, ch- you know, you're going to change and hopefully get a return of spontaneous circulation. But I have never, ever heard of such. And, and there's so many things that are going on. And where has our career field gotten to? But I got to say, when we think about the level of egregious things that are happening in our career field, yeah. you know, we, we think that we've seen the worst. And I got to tell you, Kelly, we're seeing worse and worse every time. Yes, we are. And, and you know, the thing is, I, I, don't, I don't envy Commissioner Jenkins with his, with his task of, of uh, turning around the, the problems at, at Detroit Fire EMS. That, that is a system that has been under siege and, and struggling with a dwindling tax base and infrastructure, and they've got problems more than, than most EMS systems could ever contemplate. Uh, added to the fact that that they don't even have they don't have the money that uh, that DC Fire EMS has, so um, it's a it's going to be a struggle for Commissioner Jenkins. But one of the things she had to Nancy pointed out to me in, in discussing this case today was if you're going to change an agency, you're going to transform an agency. You have to start with transforming the agency's culture, and that starts with fixing yourself and fixing the person who's sitting 18 inches away from you. Nope, this woman didn't just wake up this morning and say, you know, I'm going to be a crappy EMT who doesn't care about my patient. You can't tell me that this is an isolated thing. So, you know, she didn't just develop this attitude overnight, and this didn't suddenly become a problem uh, with this particular call. Yet, for whatever reason, this is where it came over, uh, this is where it came to a boil. If you're going to change the, the culture of your agency, uh, you have to start with yourself and your partners and your peers. Yeah, and one of the things I think you bring up a good point is that, uh, you know, uh, the normalization of deviance, and what I mean by the normalization of deviance is this. We know what the standard is. We go ahead and come off that standard a little bit. Now that becomes a new normal. Now that new normal, we come off that standard a little bit. Now that becomes a new normal until you're to a point where you can say, I'm not showing up on that scene because I'm not doing CPR for 10 minutes. You know, this is a woman that needs to probably go and sell sell shoes. That's an easy job to do is just find some place where she can sell shoes. But I don't think that this is a tough decision to make. I think that... I think that this is a termination. I would have not even suspended her. I would have terminated her on the spot. And I would go to the state and I would have her license revoked. Yep, yep. I believe, I firmly believe that's what needs to be done. I just don't think, 
uh, I, I don't see this kind of behavior as being an isolated incident from one individual. I, I, she had to have had a, a pretty crappy attitude well before this happened and, and got media coverage. And and she she also is unlikely to be the only one. And, you know, the industrialist Peter Drucker said that culture eats strategy for breakfast, meaning that, you know, no matter how effective the leadership and no, no matter how grand the, the vision for an agency, you're not going to implement that vision without buying it from the, the uh, organizational culture. Um, so unless, unless and until the, the EMT's peers start condemning this kind of behavior, uh, he's going to be uh, rushing to put out one brush fire after the next. Yeah, and this is just crazy. I mean, you know, we've got a eight-month-old infant, you know, less than a mile away, and what is an EMT doing in a quick response SUV anyway? I don't understand it. And if she had an attitude that was bad, she shouldn't have been put in this position where she could respond quickly. But, you know, it yeah. took her six minutes to get to the incident. She parked her unit on the street corner and she waited, told dispatchers that they were in position uh, around the corner and she was going to wait. Uh, in the investigation report, Thomas told her boss, as you mentioned, Kelly, told her boss that I'm not about to be on scene 10 minutes doing CPR. You know how these families get. Yeah, I know how these families get because I've been in that situation before. And you know what? You're going to do the very best that you can, and you're going to provide the yeah. best care, and you're going to give them hope. With a pediatric patient, you can give them hope. With an adult patient, that's a little bit different. But you still need to be able to be the one that's on the scene, the higher level of care, and you need to start working that. The anguish of these, right. the anguish of these parents that are going to lose this eight-month-old infant. And, and you have the audacity to say, I'm not going to do CPR for 10 minutes. You know what? I'm going to do CPR for 30 minutes. I'm going to do CPR for 40 yeah. minutes because I'm going to try to make a difference because that's what my sworn duty is. I'm off the soapbox. I don't know that I could right. talk about it anymore. I know. I, I've been doing this job for 23 years, and I I wouldn't even hesitate to uh, hesitate a guess or hazard a guess as to how many times or how many cardiac arrests, resuscitations, or critical calls I've run uh, on volatile scenes where family was panicky, family was hostile, uh, family was upset and urging me to, to pick them up and go or to do something, do anything. Those kind of things are the, the things you encounter when you're an ENT. But I can count on less than two, you know, on two hands with fingers left over the number of times when I could not defuse that sort of situation. It's a its a rare thing indeed that I can at least talk people down and be able to do my job and reassure a family that everything, yes, indeed, is being done and that their, their behavior is undermining the effectiveness of, of my efforts. And, and any competent EMT or paramedic should be able to do that the vast majority of the time. The fact that she wouldn't even try speaks to a pretty bad problem. You know, Kelly, uh, yeah. you know, just, just uh, you, you chalk this up to EMTs behaving badly, and, and this was just a horrible uh, couple weeks for some of these EMTs out there to make some horrible, uh, deplorable decisions that really give us that black eye that you and I talked about. But let's go ahead and transition and talk about our clinical issue. You know, one of the things that we, we had some uh, conversations with some folks uh, uh, when I was here in Arkansas, and, and we were talking about the best ways to take vital signs. And, uh, you know, it's an EMT class, 
and you know they want to know the best practices of how to do that. So you know, I figured that it was time maybe you and I to sit down and spend the next ten or twelve minutes or so and talking about some of the mm -hmm. tips uh, of how to take uh, blood pressures or some of the tips of of taking good vital signs. Uh, and I know that you've done a good job in the ambulance driver's perspective. Uh, you did a great article on November 15, 2011, that talks about blood pressure reading tips, tricks for EMS. And uh, I'm going to give you the floor first and hear what you have to say. Taking blood pressures on a moving ambulance is, <laughs> is something uh, I have struggled with in the past because I came into EMS with uh, a pretty significant hearing deficit. Um, I had a couple of tympanoplasties as a young man from a, a ruptured eardrum, and, and the second, first one was a failure, and the the second one was a moderate success. So it left me with a, uh, a small hole in my eardrum that I probably still have. Um, and I had, I had damaged my hearing over the years with, uh, with too much shooting without adequate ear protection. Um, back in the day, we just didn't wear earplugs when we went shooting. You manned up and you dealt with the ringing in your ears. <laughs> and uh, I ruined my hearing that way. <clears throat> so I have high-frequency hearing loss in both ears. And... Uh, and uh, a fair degree of hearing loss uh, across all uh, ranges in my left ear. So hearing blood pressures and hearing uh, lung sounds in particular uh, has always been problematic for me. And one of the things I had to learn to do very quickly was how to uh, get those blood pressures in, in a moving ambulance. And as far as blood pressure goes, it's all about isolating the patient and yourself from the rest of the, uh, from the, rest of the rig. You, you lift the patient's arm up and make sure it's not in contact with the cot or anything that can transmit road noise and tire hum. Uh, if you're going to, you, you place your palm on the patient's elbow and place their, their palm under your elbow and you, you extend the arm and you, uh, you, if you're going to uh, rest their arm across your leg, um, fine, but lift your, t uh, lift your heels up off the, uh, the floor of the rig to, to limit the road hum. Um, and one little trick that, that Bob Page taught me in a stethoscopy for a uh, dummies class was use the bell of your stethoscope and not the diaphragm. Um, and I had always used the diaphragm on my stethoscope to, to oscillate blood pressure. But as it turns out, Bob has uh, the rationale for why to do that. Um, the lower frequency sounds that you hear, you know, the lower frequency Karatkov sounds are best heard with the diaphragm and not, I mean, with the bell and not the diaphragm. Um, but it was all about, uh, at least in the back of the rig, isolating yourself, uh, what you're trying to hear from all the other ambient noise. And, um, that's, that was it for blood pressures and to, a, to the same extent for, for lung sounds. I have to listen to lung sounds and it's really important that I know what the lung sounds are. Generally, I'm going to listen to them, uh, on the scene before I get in the truck, uh, but uh, I'm sure you have other tricks, man. Well, let's hear some of yours. Yeah, you know, one of the things, I really like your thought, and, and, you know, that vibration really makes a difference. I think, first off, it starts with a really good stethoscope. But even before we get there, you know, you should be doing a set of vital signs in the house to give you a baseline so you know where you're going to go. But the, the thing that I always teach students is the blood pressure doesn't start with the cuff. The blood pressure starts with taking a pulse. So know mm -hmm. where the pulse is and get a feel for the pulse and then go ahead and worry about where you're going to put your 
your blood pressure cuff and how that's going to work. You need to kind of know what's going on before you do that. A lot of people take the blood pressure first, and then a lot of times they're taking the pulse with the blood pressure cuff still on. You need to remove that blood pressure cuff so you can ensure that there's a good flow, uh, and then you take that pulse. So you take a pulse, you, you feel the rate, you feel the rhythm, you kind of know what's going on, and then you put your blood pressure cuff on. There are some paramedics I've seen who are actually listening to the pulse with the with their stethoscope or listening to the pulse uh, in the brachial artery and, and just kind of hear and listening to that blood flow to know where to put the to put the uh, uh, the cuff. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, if that's their preference to do that, I think that that's okay. But I think what we want to do is we want to be able to uh, uh, kind of know where we're going to go and how that blood pressure cuff is going to go on. Always picking the right blood pressure cuff for the size of the arm. I think that's mm -hmm. always important. Now, here's one of the things that I, I, I think is important as we teach folks are you don't stop looking for the blood pressure and start listening for the blood pressure. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I want to talk about what that means is because we're always looking at the meter and we're trying to figure out mm -hmm. what those numbers are. And then we're kind of playing with the, with the air and we're stopping it at a certain point to make sure that's where we're hearing it first and then that's where we're hearing it last. Listen for it. And then as soon as you hear it, lock that off and then look at the number. And then as soon as it mm -hmm. goes away, lock it off, look at the number. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in, in the bouncing of the needle. Actually listen for what that, that blood pressure is. And, and I think that that's one of the things that uh, I try to get across to the newbies when, when we're talking about blood pressure. Yeah, you want to you want to auscultate a blood pressure, not oscillate one. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you want to listen. Yeah, yeah, you want to listen rather than watch for the needle bound. And you know, and pay attention to what's going on around you. Uh, you mentioned the cup size, and that is extremely important. One of the the failures I see, I won't I won't call it failure. One of the weak points I see in many new EMT students, paramedic students, is they're over reliant on technology uh, for. Uh, obtaining their vital signs and for obtaining their assessment. You know, if they could if they could give an entire patient assessment set of vital signs without ever laying a hand on the patient, that would be wonderful for them. And you can tell the, the people that, that uh you can tell the EMTs that, that don't place a, a priority on it by the things they don't have when they show up for clinicals. Right. If they don't show up with a watch and a pen, then they're not really serious about assessing their patients and taking vital signs. Right. Um because they slap a blood pressure cuff on and they get their heart rate and their respiratory, I mean, their heart rate and their blood pressure from the NIBP machine on the life pack. And there have been studies that have shown that the blood pressure can be off as much as 10 tor when you're riding in an ambulance. And you don't want that because yeah. that's going to put you into a whole different management and treatment protocol. Kelly, let me ask you this, though. So as we're taking a blood pressure, and it happens to everybody, sometimes we're doing it right, but we're just not going to hear a sound. So what do we do in those cases now when it comes to listening for a blood pressure? We didn't hear anything. You know, a lot of times and a lot of the... Um, you know, a lot of the false readings that people are giving us is because they feel they need to make something up because they didn't hear a sound. Well, what do you do in those yeah. cases? They're, the blood pressure, the, they give you a blood pressure that's either 120 over 70 or a blood pressure that's taken manually and they give you odd numbers. 145 over 983. Uh, <laughs> apparently their, their eyes are a lot better than mine to pick out the odd number uh, increments uh, that aren't even printed on a, uh, a sphygmometer gauge. Right. I think I think when you can't oscillate one effectively, you you back up and you palpate one, 
uh, and and this is the time where you make use of your technology as an adjunct and a and a a, a, a secondary check rather than the primary way of obtaining your blood pressure. If you cannot oscillate one, we'll try to get one by NIBP. If you can get a good pulse oximetry plus waveform, pay attention to the plus waveform um, and watch where it disappears and where it reappears throughout the inflation and deflation cycle of the NIBP. That tells you a lot right there. You know, and, and uh, you, watch, you watch as the numbers pump up and, and you see where that, uh, where that plus waveform starts to disappear, that is roughly analogous. It's probably about 10 millimeters of mercury less than the actual systolic blood pressure. But you double-check it on the way down, too. When does the plus waveform come back? Uh, there's a little bit of a time lag. Um, but you should be within 10 millimeters of mercury or so if you're watching it carefully. Uh, but uh, I have no problem trusting an NIBP machine if it's within normal ranges. If it doesn't correlate to the clinical picture I have of my patient, no, I'm not going to rely on an NIBP machine. And I'm not going to kid you and say that I check a blood pressure manually on every single patient. There are some patients where it's pretty obvious that they're, you know, they're, they're not in shock. Their blood pressure is, is, uh, is going to be within normal ranges uh, or I won't say within normal limits. I'm going to say uh, not an issue for the uh, related to the patient's current complaints. In uh, those patients, I'll slap an NIBP cup on them, and unless the the numbers are crazy and don't match what I'm seeing, I'll go with that. Uh, the you know the research that shows that NIBP can be act, uh, inaccurate. Uh, the biggest inaccuracies inaccuracies are at the uh, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. When the patient's blood pressure is very high or when the patient's blood pressure is very low, that's where you're more likely to get your inaccurate reading. Uh, but if I can't oscillate one, yeah, I'll use an NIBP machine. I'll palpate one. I'll oscillate one. I'll look at the flat waveform. I'll do all those little tips and tricks to, to try to at least uh, come up with a reasonable estimate of at least what their systolic blood pressure would be. Um, my hands are not as skilled uh, as some at detecting uh, pulses and, and, and that sort of thing. My old boss, uh, Liz Hyde at Darbone Ambulance, could accurately palpate a systolic and diastolic blood pressure. She's the only person I know who can do that, but she could put a blood pressure cuff on and with no stethoscope accurately tell you what the patient's systolic and the diastolic blood pressure was just by feel. That's um, interesting. That's awesome. and, That's an awesome skill right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's like witchcraft, you know. But here's, um, here's I don't something. understand it, don't know how to do it, and have never been able to, to mimic it. But uh, she could do it. She here's could do it very well. Something I was able to do is I was able to feel a pulse and tell you within two beats what the pulse was. Just counting it off in that mental block in your head? or I mean, just, just by the feel of it. Just by the feel of it. Because, yeah. you know, I'm, I was the type of guy where I would hold everybody's hand or I would take their pulse when I was talking to them and, and it almost got to be just second nature to say oh that's 76 oh that's 80 and sometimes I'd be off by two or three beats but it took me a well, long what time if they to had a, what if they had a perfusing PAC or something that you know well, you, I mean, you that's, need at least you need at least need at least two yeah I'm talking uh, about a regular rate I'm uh, talking about yeah. a regular rate a regular rate yeah, so, okay. So you're saying things. that you would, you'd have an idea of, of what it would be within two beats, but you're not relying on two beats to tell you what the rate is. No. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. So, yeah. but you know, and 
here's one of the things that I wanted to bring up about uh, blood pressures as well. You know, we really have to have an understanding, Kelly, about what the blood pressure means. And I don't think that we really have a full understanding that when we're taking a blood pressure, what's actually happening in the body. So when we yeah. deal with the systolic blood pressure, this is the measurement of the left ventricular function. This is what the left ventricle is doing when it comes to that systolic blood pressure. And, and it's important to note, you know, as you start to think about the diastolic pressure, it, it, you know, you hear that it's this is the relaxation phase. It, this is more than just the relaxation phase. It's it's really the direct measurement of the the degree of um, of, 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 that's right, a vessel constriction or or ves, a vascular yeah. uh, re resistance. And, and when you start to look at it this way, it really starts to open up more of a story about what the heart's doing and the circulation of blood throughout the body. And, and I think. We, we, as clinicians, we look at blood pressure sometimes and we just uh, take it as an arbitrary number. And I don't think when we take these vital signs, we're really thinking about the pathophysiology of what's going on in the body and we're using it as a tool to determine how we're going to treat our patients. That, that is an excellent point. And, and in using it as a tool and determining how we're going to treat our patients, I think we put too much emphasis on the wrong numbers. If I'm going to let hemodynamics determine the treatment I, I render, uh, I'm going to rely on mean arterial blood pressure, not systolic pressure. Why are you uh, doing that's it? What I'm, that is what I'm going to uh, aim all my treatment forward is titrating my treatment to a mean arterial pressure of 64 or better. 70 would be nice and 80 would be wonderful. But I'm going to try for at least, and, and what many people don't uh appreciate is that the NIVB machines, particularly those, I don't know how Zoles work, but uh, I would presume in a similar fashion. But uh, on my LifePak 12, the blood pressure is, you know, when we calculate a mean arterial pressure, we do it by a mathematical uh, formula from systolic and diastolic blood pressure. NIVB machines do it exactly the opposite. They determine the mean arterial pressure and then calculate systolic and diastolic from that. Um, so the, the, the number you really need to look at uh, if you're going to, you know, titrate treatment toward uh, hemodynamics, you need to look at that little number in parentheses right next to your blood pressure reading, the mean arterial pressure. Uh, that's probably the easiest one to titrate your treatment to. Yeah, another one to do, another one to think about as well is, you know, if you don't have those NIVPs on the truck, and a lot of times a lot of the critical care medics are going to be carrying those, but you know, and certainly they're on the monitors, um, uh, some of those monitors as well, as you mentioned. But I also like to look at pulse pressure. You know, I think pulse mm -hmm. pressure and the way you get pulse pressure is by subtracting the diastolic pressure from the systolic pressure. And you should have a normal pulse pressure of about 30 or 40 millimeters of mercury. You start to get a narrowing of that pulse pressure that's less than 25% of the systolic blood pressure. I don't know, Kelly, is it 25%, 20, 25%, something like that? Yeah. But I think that, that a narrowing pulse pressure really talks about and it really shares that you have a decreasing, a decreased cardiac output, you have an increasing peripheral vascular resistance, and uh, that could be associated with systemic vasoconstriction. So now, again, as you're going through these vital signs and you're thinking about what those numbers mean, you're really able to look at what's going on inside the body and how the patient is, is uh, compensating or not. Going to the other extreme, going from, from 
doing this hands-on and, and feeling uh, to determining the, the same sort of thing by more efficient use of your technology. Um, I wrote a uh, I, I wrote up a how to use a, a plus waveform uh, article uh, quite some time back in, in on EMS one uh, from uh, from the recommendation or some stuff I learned from uh, a couple of Facebook friends uh, Jeff Poland and uh, Don Walensiak that uh, talked about uh, how to interpret a plus waveform uh, on your uh, your monitor. Um, do you ever pay much attention? To what that uh, pulse oximeter waveform looks like, and, and have you ever tried to correlate that to the patient's clinical condition? Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I, that's not one of the skills I've ever done. But I, I'm interested. I was to never hear, taught that either. I'm but, interested but to it's hear. Effective. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on that. Why is that important? Well, what he, what a what a plethysmograph is is simply it's a measure. Uh, it's a it's a uh, measure of uh, volume oscillations within a limb. They do it through a number of different ways. Uh, there, you know, some plethysmographs require that you suspend the limb in water, and uh, uh, but on our on our monitors, they do it with a light plethysmograph. They they look at the oscillations in pressure uh, within a capillary bed uh, in via those pulse oximeter probes, um, and those changes will tell you by the shape of those waves whether there is a uh, whether they're, you know, kind of biphasic waves or whether there's a dichrotic notch. It's not actually a dichrotic notch, uh, critical paramedics, but it resembles that if you look at it on the plus waveform. Um, hmm. But uh, some of those things, uh, variations in those plus waves will tell you, for example, whether a patient is hypovolemic or not. Yeah, good point. Um, uh, and uh, in Dom's case, he was able to, uh, he picked up a patient who had, um, a reported heart rate of one thing, and then when he felt, it was far different. Uh, it was half of, of what the reported heart rate was, and with a little bit of fiddling around with the filters on his monitor and looking at the plus wave, he discovered that the, you know, he could tell that, uh, not only tell, but prove that the patient, uh, patient's bigeminal PVCs were not perfusing. So uh, that this patient needed some rate support rather than, than uh, PVC suppression because those, those by general PVCs were not perfusing. You can you can see that sort of thing uh, whether a uh, ectopic bead actually perfuses or not. Interesting, right there on your plus uh, your plus waveform. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, it was pretty neat stuff. Uh, you you learn something every day. Cool. We'll we'll get EMS one to yeah, pull we'll that article. Yeah, we'll yeah, I want to make go ahead and make one more uh, point before we close. You know, for the folks out there, one of the things that I would add to your vital sign assessment if you're not doing it already is the pain scale. We don't do that well enough and and we need to stick that in there and and regardless of what the call is Ask the patient, are you in any pain at all? Maybe it's chronic pain. Um, maybe they don't realize they're in pain. There are some people that have high tolerances to pain. But we need to start asking about that and get into the mentality of changing our culture that we're thinking about patients' pain and we need to address it. My last point is this. I will encourage everyone out there that regardless of the call of the patient, listen to everybody's lung sounds and listen to everybody's heart sounds. And the reason I say that is because learn what normal is. So learn what normal breath sounds are, learn what the normal S1 and S2 is, and then if you hear something out of the ordinary, you can go to the doctor at the hospital and say, Doc, I heard something in their heart, I'm not sure what it is, 
and now you've just taught yourself what an S3 gallop sounds like. Doc, yeah. I heard something in their lungs. I don't know what it is. Now you've just taught yourself what Ronkai is. And and, yeah. and these are hard skills to learn, but you do it by knowing what normal is. And anything other than normal, you're going to teach yourself what that is. But, Kelly, I think we got a clinical issue here. Yes, yes, I think we do. And, and I'll add in a, a capper of my own, we talked a lot about blood pressure and, and doing it manually and using our, our technology to get a good blood pressure. One of the things we didn't really hit on hard was simple things like checking a pulse and checking breathing. Guys, if you're going to count respirations, and you should be, on a male, you want to look at the stomach. On a female, you want to look above the breasts near the clavicle. That's the best place to, to look at chest rise in the male and the female. Look at the belly on the males. Look at the uh, look at the upper chest on the females, and if you're like I am, when you've ever tried to palpate a radial pulse in someone and wondered, uh, you know, how can they be dead if they're talking to me? Because I, for the life of me, I can't feel a radial pulse. That's all about finesse. And one of the tricks you might try sometimes is if you feel a very faint radial pulse and you're you're having a problem detecting it. If you will press down a little bit harder with the finger that is proximal to the heart and lift the finger that is distal, you can induce a little bit of thrill in that artery that may make it a little easier for you to palpate a pulse. Wait a minute. Um, Wait a minute. Wait and uh, a minute. that's that's one little one little trick I can ha I can add to the mix. Um, but sure. it, yeah, we sure got a great you're... clinical issue and something that's not a not paid a whole lot of attention. Uh, or it's just uh, taken for granted in, in the early phases of the EMT training, and, and a lot of people don't have these tricks. So, so uh, we'd like minute. to hear some wait of your minute. own. Kelly, go ahead. Sure, you're looking at the clavicles. Sure, you're looking yeah, at the clavicles. Of course, I'm looking at the clavicles. Okay. I'm a professional. Get us out of here. Yeah, but we've got a. Uh, th those are some of our tips and tricks for vital signs of training, and, and uh, we'd like to hear your own. So, hit us with your thoughts, comments. Questions, concerns, and uh, suggestions at the show at ems1.com. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. Go over there and do that. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, I'm Kelly Grayson. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS.